Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. This is your host, Michael Easley. On the broadcast today, we have Mark David Hall. We've become friends in the last couple of years. We've had him on the podcast before. Mark David Hall is the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics and Faculty Fellow in the Honors Program at George Fox University. He's also an associate faculty at the Center for Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. Man, you get around. And a senior fellow at Baylor's University Institute for Studies of Religion. Mark has written, edited, and co-edited dozens of academic books. In 2019, he published his first book for the general public entitled, Did America Have a Christian Founding? separating modern myth from historical truth. And we interviewed him on that text on In Context in July of 2020, so you can go back and get another dose of Mark. Uh, He's also a visiting scholar with the George Mason Mercatus Center, and they're helping fund a new project that we're going to talk about, obviously, in this interview. And Mark David Hall, you've got some news about Princeton. We have some fantastic news. My wife and I are going to be spending next academic year in Princeton. I'll be a fellow in the James Madison program, just focusing on reading and writing and learning what I can learn there. Now, now how does one continue to teach when you're doing all this research, or are you out of the classroom? You know, I was just providentially blessed by God when I arrived at George Fox University. Like most CCCU schools, I was expecting to teach a 4-4 teaching load, four classes each semester. And someone died and left money to endow a chair, which allows me to teach a a 3-2 load, three classes, one semester, to the next. I have a lot more freedom to do research and writing than most Christian college professors, and I've just tried to be diligent in my use of time to um, write first uh, a decent number of academic works. But over the last five years, I've decided I want want to write more broadly for the church and for laypersons who aren't necessarily academics. So that was behind my Did America Have a Christian Founding book. I have a book coming out in the fall, actually, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced um, Liberty and Equality for All Americans, pushing back against the 1619 Project and that sort of thing. Mm. And now I've started work on Christian nationalism, which you've read a little bit of, I believe. Yes, and I have got more questions than we have time. Let's go to work here. I'm going to ask you a few questions just for defining terms for folks, because I appreciate, you know, I, I lived in the academic arena for a short window of time, and they do not connect with the masses for right or wrong. And so I appreciate your endeavor to do that. So first of all, define Christian nationalism for the average person. We hear that term a lot. What's it mean, Mark? And this is part of the problem. So pretty much no one was using the term prior to 2006. Now, back in the 80s and 90s, everyone on the left was complaining about the religious right, right? So Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell and the fear that these religious conservatives wanted to take over America and ban abortion and put women back in the home and and this sort of thing. In 2006, the label sort of changed. I think it's the same sort of concern, but the focus now is on Christian nationalism, which I I think one thing the critics all have in common, it's in some sense an improper conflation of God and country, but sort of like the critiques of the religious right, um, its critics usually mean something like Christians who want to bring their faith into the public square 
in an inappropriate way. Mm. So Christians who want to engage in politics to ban abortion, that's Christian nationalism. But if you're a Christian who engages in politics to end Jim Crow legislation and school segregation like the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., that's perfectly proper, right? That's not Christian nationalism. So it can be a very subjective term just used basically to, to tar Christian conservatives who believe we should be involved in politics. You know, I, I often tell our church um, that social media has has truncated uh, information and headlines and clickbait to the point that you, you can't really believe any link you click based on the you know the clickbait. And and when you're talking about the issues that you've addressed in your articles, which by the way will have a number of links in the show notes to Mark's current and more recent articles that you need to read, but. Again, just as a sidebar, I mean, you deal with college students and the public in general. Goodness, defining these terms is hard enough for a thinking person, much less a person that looks to social media for information. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And that's one thing we should always insist on. If someone's critiquing whatever it is, but in this case, Christian nationalism, we should say, look, give us a clear definition of what you're talking about. Some works attempt to do so. Most of the works written since 2006 are just pure polemics, usually written by journalists or activists, Andrew Seidel of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. That should sort of give you a clue right there that this guy has an agenda. He actually calls his work, he, he says this is not a work of academic history, this is an attack, an attack yeah. on Christian nationalism. There is one decent book where I think two social scientists make a good faith effort to define and measure Christian nationalism, and maybe we'll talk about that yes. eventually. Although I think they're acting in good faith, I, I think their measures are profoundly flawed, as I've argued in print, and I'm happy to argue here today. Well, you talk about Whitehead and Perry, and we will come back to that. Define, and this isn't a term so much, but your sense on why does the white male become sort of the indelicate term, the whipping boy for all this? Well, because it just doesn't make sense. I, th I think when you're defining Christian nationalism as this toxic blend of racism and sexism and militarism, I'll just stop there. There's other toxic things that are part of it. It almost doesn't make sense to say African-Americans are racist against African-Americans, certainly, right? It almost doesn't make sense to say women are sexist against women. And so white Christian males are left holding the bag, right? These are the only really evil people we need to worry about. And yes, Whitehead and Perry find that 65% of African Americans are Christian nationalists as defined by their study, but they're good Christian nationalists, right? They're advocating for civil rights, not for putting African Americans back into um, slavery or Jim Crow legislation or whatever the fear is in that respect. Do you think, and I'm going to put absolute bars that can be conservatives or liberals on this, do you think most writers, uh, journalism's gone, my take, it's opinion and positions. Do you think they know that most Americans are never going to go back and read source material? They know that they can say something uh, without any referencing or citations or verification and get away with it? You know, I, I think there's truth in that. I don't know if you want to get this far down into the weeds, but in some of these polemics, as I write about in the Tilting at Windmills article, 
Um, these authors make very clear, verifiable claims that are simply false. And if they had done their research, if they had gone and actually looked, and I'm thinking here of the influence of Rusas Rashtuni, they would see there is no evidence or not the sort of evidence a claim exists. And so that's just malpractice on their part. And if someone bothers to check them out, as I did, I, I think you can partially pull the pull sheet, the back. Mm-hmm. pull the wool off their eyes. I think that's what I'm looking for and say, look, the, the emperor has no clothes. What provoked me to get you back on the podcast was you had posted something with an article called Jesus and John Wayne Among the Deplorables by a gentleman named uh, Michael Young, whom uh, I've read the article twice. Uh, and, and this is what provoked me to say, okay, uh, Mark, you got to help me out with this article. I like a lot of ways saying, I don't know him. Maybe at some point we'll, we'll ask him on the podcast, but that triggered something in you to post it and comment about it. So let, let's come from, from the side door and then we'll get back to your articles. Um, you've read Young's article, Jesus and John Wayne among the deplorables. And again, we'll have that in the show notes, some high level observations about this. Sure. Well, the first thing we need to say is that it was about a book published by Christian Dumez, who's at Calvin College. Correct. The book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds awfully serious, right? If if white evangelicals (laughs) have done this, we need to know about it. She kind of acts as if it's a work of history. I, I think it's best understood as a work of activism that uses history to help make her case. One of the frustrating things reading this book is... You know, part of what she writes about, I lived through, and I can recognize what she's talking about, and I can understand how, from a certain perspective, she could believe what she's writing. So one of the major arguments of the book is that within white evangelicalism, you have this sort of toxic masculinity, right? And then she can point to instances of white evangelical leaders who have fallen, who abused women, who um, had maybe even consensual sex outside of the bounds of marriage, Um, And this sort of thing, right? We all know this happens, and we've all condemned this, and we can say, yeah, that happened, that's very unfortunate. But does it characterize white evangelicalism? I I think that's a very important claim. But then she turns to movements like the Promise Keepers, and in her treatment, Promise Keepers becomes almost solely about male headship within the family specifically. Now, people might have different views on that and what that should look like and so forth and so on. But if anyone knows anything about Promise Keepers, you know it's about a heck of a lot more than that, right? It's about racial reconciliation. It's about fathers spending time with their children, uh, being present for their wives, loving their families, and this sort of thing, right? So she just sort of glosses over all the good things that I think all of us would agree are good and focuses on this male headship, which you know some white evangelicals might accept, some might reject. Uh, but we need to understand there's far more to Promise Keepers than that. And it certainly becomes a stretch to say because white evangelicals have been a part of the Promise Keepers movement that we've somehow corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. And Mm -hmm. what the book is really about is Donald Trump. She is just so mad that Donald Trump got elected and evangelicals voted for him. And so she's trying to explain (laughs) it in terms of racism and sexism and and the whole nine yards. Yeah, a couple of observations I've said goodness, 20 plus years now, you have to differentiate policy versus personality. And if we were to to use the same lens that she and other authors do with MLK or JFK, we'd have a very different perspective on things, but that's a third rail. You cannot talk about that. And the other part that it always strikes me is if you go back to American history, 
for right or wrong, the Europeans came over here and started this experiment. So it's not as though you can say it should have been more diverse and more inclusive. There was no diversity. There was no inclusion. It was a survival effort. And one can arguably say maybe even that was wrong for the Brits to come over here. I don't know. My point simply is it's such a revisionist attempt that's what irritates me, Mark. And it just okay. Let's talk about these things. Uh, the other thing I was going to say beyond policy versus personality: the aforementioned white evangelicals who got into trouble are gone. When those things happen, you're done. You're done. That's right. In no other mm-hmm. field, and this is completely overlooked in these articles we've talked about. It, in no other area of life can you do what those people did. And you go back to work tomorrow as a physician, as a politician, as an engineer, as an owner of a company with no problem. But if you're a white male and you're in the ministry or anything Christian, you're done. Which to me is good. It's good. They're out, right? That's right. No, I think that's exactly right. I do think it's maybe a fair complaint on her part. Why did white evangelicals embrace Donald Trump, right? This thrice-divorced person who almost bragged about having sex with women outside the bounds of marriage and this sort of thing. It's it's a fair question. I think I have an answer for it. I think most white evangelicals I know simply held their nose and voted for Trump because they didn't want Hillary Clinton to be president. And they were hopeful that Trump would appoint good judges, hopefully overturn over his way, protect religious liberty. I don't think any, no white evangelical that I know, and I know I don't run in representative samples, uh, but no one thought it was laudable that he was divorced, that he groped women and this sort of thing, right? It was simply, we have a choice to make. There are two realistic choices and let's vote for the one that we hope might do some good. And I have to say, I, I, as a lifelong Republican voter, came out in 2016 urging my fellow conservatives to vote for a protest vote, right? To cast a protest vote. Trump became president and he appointed excellent judges, including U.S. Supreme Court judges. He was um, excellent on religious liberty. He didn't get the nation involved in a new war. I think in many respects, his presidency was very good in spite of him maybe not being the most ideal exemplar of a person, I'll say. Well, and not to mention the Abraham Accords by his son-in-law, not to mention the unemployment rates being the lowest in history, not to mention African-American unemployment rates being the lowest in, goodness, at least till the 60s. Yeah, energy independence, were, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's where I say policy versus personality. That's <laughs> yeah, right. That's the, a perfect and, distinction. And again, if you're any thinking person would say, okay, I don't like the the mean tweets and, and the attacks on individuals, but there were cabinet members and you know this as well as I do. You've been around this as long as I have. The people in, who are the you know behind the puppet, if you will, are making the decisions. The policy writers, the cabinet he had around him, there were some good men and women. And the opposite could be said for any administration. You can have a really good fronts person and a terrible, you know, people behind the curtain. Anyway, I'm off the weeds on our topics. Let's get back to a couple more things. In your estimation. When did, the, and, and we can go back to moral majority, as you've mentioned, and I, I sat with Cal Thomas my first year uh, moving to D.C., 93, I guess, and we had lunch. It was the day uh, Clinton was being impeached. I'll never forget because he was more interested in watching the TV than talking to me. <laughs> Understandably, it was historic. But he was almost categoric that the moral majority in hindsight was not a good thing. And I mean, he's a lot smarter cat than me, but I was, I was on my heels going, you're kidding me. But the reaction to the parts we didn't like, 
you used the you know held your nose and voted. Some people did that. I mean, this is nothing new, Mark. I mean, help me out mm-hmm. here. It's it's like we, we've had this rodeo before, but did the moral majority get some good footholds? One could argue. Yeah, and of course, Cal Thomason came out with a book around this time, right? Basically making this this argument. No, I, th- I think he was absolutely wrong. As you know, evangelicals and fundamentalists more or less retreated from politics in the 1920s and 1930s. Carl Henry called us to political oh. engagement in the 1940s. But still, it was slow. Throughout the South, most evangelicals were Democrats. Many evangelicals just didn't participate in politics. I, I think Jerry Falwell and, and Pat Robertson and uh, others who were involved in that movement did a, a great work to convince evangelicals that we have to be involved in the public square, that we should be making public arguments, that we should be voting for candidates that will respect innocent human life and religious liberty. And, you know, some things are maybe more debatable. I'm not sure God has an ideal tax rate for the United States of America. But in general, I, I'm kind of in favor of lower taxes. I think that benefits everyone. And they got us to be involved in politics. And, and thank goodness they did. Maybe some of them were a bit too optimistic that by wielding political power, we can bring about God's kingdom on earth. I'm not sure that's a fair critique, but maybe some people involved in those movements did put a little too much faith in politics. It can't be, right? Our faith is in God, the sovereign creator of the universe. Ultimately, all things will be made right by him. Um, but that doesn't mean we should just avoid politics and wait around for the second coming. Not at all. Well, and, and as you point out, both in your, your first book and in this article, had we not had, and we can talk about deist versus, you know, what we would call true Christians and the founding fathers. I tell people often watch the HBO series on John Adams, because that's perhaps one of the more accurate depictions of this individual. His Christianity is muted. But in his amicus or amicus, however they say it today, briefs, they were sermons, Mark. I mean, these guys wrote sermons. And the, the, the length of scripture they quoted before they got to their legal writings, and this is all forgotten. This is all left on the shelf because we want to talk about slavery, egregious, granted. We want to talk about misabuse. We want to talk about all the wrong things that the white guy did. But at the same time, we've jettisoned so much of the fact that we can go out and uh, you know stand on the corner and yell and scream at the president or anybody we want under this nomenclature of freedom of speech. Let's get to your article. Can you know, a brief comment about John Adams Please. real quickly since you brought him up? John Adams clearly ceases to be an Orthodox Christian, but yes. I think you're exactly right. He's profoundly influenced by his faith in a variety of respects. His wife is a pretty active abolitionist. Yes. John Adams never owned a slave. John Adams is a primary author of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which has wonderful things to say about freedom. Shortly after it became law, a slave, Quack Walker, sued for his freedom under the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. And the, the highest judicial court in Massachusetts said, that's right, slavery is unconstitutional in Massachusetts. So slavery was abolished in Massachusetts, I think in large part because of John Adams. Yeah. If we're going to talk about slavery and the founders, we have to talk about stories like that, not just the reality that some founders owned slaves. They did. And, you know, we can talk about the extent to which we should judge them, but we must recognize you have founders like John Adams, Roger Sherman, and many, many others who never owned slaves and took active steps to end slavery in the founding era. Well, again, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, arguably between Witherspoon and Adams, you know, you probably won't find two more prominent figures in abolition. I mean, those certainly are two very prominent ones. I'll mention another one, someone like a Ben Franklin. Sure. Throughout his life, he owned 
five enslaved Americans, but eventually decided that it was improper practice, that it was wrong. He freed the last of, of his, basically they were servants, but they were slaves, and we can critique him for that, joined the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society, and was involved in sending petitions to the first federal Congress saying that slavery must be ended. In, in fact, I think you have a large number of, no founder defended slavery as a positive good. Many worked actively in it. It was ended in something like eight states between 1776 and 1806, I believe it was. I have an entire chapter on the founders in slavery in my forthcoming book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. So just a little plug for that forthcoming work there. Plug it, brother. Plug it. Let's talk about tilting at windmills. Use the wonderful illustration of Don Quixote, and we'll leave that for other readers. I want to jump to this this citation you have uh august 17 white supremacist alt-right oh that was another one define alt-right for us yeah i think alt-right refers to this incre- i'm not even sure it belongs on the left right spectrum but alt-right is that's why i want you to help me <laughs> i hear so yeah, many you know, things these, tossed around these um extremely racist americans the sort of folks who joined the kkk or not neo-nazi outfit the sort of folks who showed up in Charlottesville right after Trump's election saying all sorts of hateful things about Jews and African-Americans and sometimes women, um, sometimes Roman Catholics. Yeah, they're just hateful extremists. Um, they do exist, and, and I think they must be condemned by Christian leaders and others. But it's a tiny number. It's a tiny, tiny number. And and it is interesting if you go back and look at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, you see no Christian symbols among the you know, various flags are waving and posters are carrying and this sort of thing. Um, oftentimes, these extreme racist groups don't like Christianity because they understand that Christianity undermines racism. And so there are problematic groups out there, and we need to keep our eye on them. We need to condemn them. In some instances, the FBI needs to arrest them and, and uh, investigate them and arrest them if they're engaged in illegal activity. But this in no way, shape, or form characterizes what even the critics of Christian nationalism call Christian nationalist. Uh, that's a plug. We'll jump back. But your article in, in uh, Providence called, Is David French a Christian Nationalist? Question mark. Manufacturing Christian Nationalism was dropped March 3rd. And you make it a very easy article for people to digest. But you point out and with these images that were used to promote this, other than three of them, if I remember correctly, your article, none of them had to do anything with that day. It's like stock Michael, photographs. Michael, retell that story because I think it is so telling. So January 6, 2021, I'm flying home from a speaking engagement. I stop in Dallas for layover, and I get an email from a reporter from Sojourners Magazine, a pretty far left Christian magazine. And she said, would you please comment on the Christian images used in the Capitol Hill riots? And I said, certainly, please send them to me. She sent me five images. Two were indeed Christian images, but they were nowhere near the Capitol Hill riots. In fact, one was 1.5 miles away by the Washington Monument, which is about exactly 1.5 miles from the U.S. Capitol building. So there were some Christian images at the Jericho March, I think it was called. Um, You know, there was a gathering of Christians who prayed that the election would be overturned and that sort of thing. They have a complete First Amendment right to do that. I'm not particularly sympathetic to their concerns, but absolutely, they can gather and pray and that sort of thing. That's not the same as rioting. That's not the same as attacking the U.S. Capitol building. Well, the images 
that did in fact come from the attack on the U.S. Capitol building. One is a pine tree flag, which is a revolutionary era flag. And so one could imagine you would use a revolutionary era flag because of the symbolism, the connection to the revolution, has a big pine tree on it. It has the words, an appeal to heaven, which indeed might come from Judges 11, but it also might come from Locke's second treatise on government. He uses that repeatedly when talking about revolution. Mm. And so I think that's an ambiguous symbol. And then, of course, you had this really crazy goth-looking guy with skeletal hands holding a Bible. And I just don't know what to make of him. I've been in evangelical churches my entire life, and I've never seen uh, an evangelical <laughs> that looks at, like that. And, and yet, when you look, and I reviewed broadly the footage, what you see is you see hundreds of American flags, Trump flags, MAGA hats. And I, I would say even then we need to be careful, right? Does that mean patriotic Americans attacked the U.S. Capitol building because there were American flags? No, I would say they were misusing that important symbol in this horrific attack. And so I cautioned the report. I said, you know, you want to be careful before you say Christian nationalists attacked the U.S. Capitol, which is clearly where she was going. She ignored my caution, mm. came out with an article the next day saying Christian nationalists attacked the U.S. Capitol building, had three pictures, none of which involved the attack on the Capitol. There were a few other images that came to light later, so I'm not saying that none existed, but I still think you, you need to be real careful in attributing the, the attack on the Capitol to Christian nationalism. And, and this is a side comment, which you know drives me nuts, which I have unplugged from most mainstream medias and cable media, because there's no journalism today, Mark. It's opinion. It's jumping to conclusions. I used to say that revisionists were the only ones who pretend to know the truth. Now, now you know, I would it, say revisionists just concoct a story. It's not even truth anymore. It is. It is becoming problematic, and we know with a, a magazine like Sojourners, it's, it's pretty uh, explicitly left of center. I, I think where it's the worst is where it involves newspapers and magazines that purport to be neutral. So something like the New York Times or the Washington Post, which is clearly biased. Um, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Democracy dies in the dark? Doesn't prevail with the WAPOS? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, what a democracy great line. Dies in the dark. <laughs> no, so I think we need to be skeptical. I do think it is important to try to find halfway reliable sources. One of my favorite is The Economist, the British news magazine, which I, I don't think it's objective, but I think it's fair. And so, you know, we do need to try to get accurate news about current events in America and elsewhere if we're going to be actively engaged citizens. But we should be very, very skeptical of sources that we run across on Twitter or Facebook or, or that sort of thing. Absolutely. You, you mentioned The Economist. I remember perhaps the first time I traveled overseas and uh, they walk around with you know stacks of things and it was the only thing in English was <laughs> The Economist. So I took a copy, read it cover to cover, first time I'd seen it. I'm probably, I'm, I got it in my 20s, maybe 30s. But point being, they didn't have attribution to the articles. There were the authors were not named. And they're, I think they're famous they, for they that. well, yeah. I think they changed that now. I think there's a percentage that do put their name on it, but I thought that's interesting cuz now you're you're putting yourself out there but you're not, you know, there's an alignment to say, look, I'm trying to report the story accurately with the proper citations, but you do, I'm not going to, which, you know, I guess cuts two ways. Anyway, I digress. Let's go back to your article, Tilting at Windmills. So I wanted to just read this paragraph. This comes from the white supremacist alt-right rally in Charlottesville 
Virginia Baylor professor Thomas Kidd and you were troubled by the unwillingness of some political and religious leaders to unequivocally repudiate the protesters' racism. We, you and Thomas Kidd, wrote a public letter and signed was by more than 250 Christian scholars of American history, politics, and law. And it says, quote, racism should be denounced by religious and civic leaders in no uncertain terms. Equivocal talk about racist groups gives those groups sanction, something no politician or pastor should ever do. As Christian scholars, we affirm the reality that all humans are created in the image of God and should be treated with respect and dignity. There is no good moral, biblical, or theological reason to denigrate others on the basis of race or ethnicity, to exalt one race over others, or to countenance those who do. What kind of feedback did you get from that? You know, it was, at least in the circles I run, it was unequivocally positive. Uh, first of all, we got 250 scholars with making precious little effort who were willing to sign on. These are all no self-identified Christians. No small task. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they, you know, and, and we all agree, right? And I think this is what troubles me so much. So I want to make it crystal clear in my critiques of the critics of Christian nationalism, I am in no way, shape, or form giving any cover to racism, sexism, nativism, and that sort of thing. I, I, th- I think Christians have the best reasons for condemning these things. And I just give that as an example of a very clear instance where I took the lead in doing so. There are plenty of other examples where other Christians have taken the lead. And the reality is, I, I, I think most, if we can even just focus on white evangelicals, and this letter was signed by a wide range of Christians, I think white evangelicals, by and large, understand that racism is wrong. They work to countenance it. All of us may have some implicit biases that we're working on, but I I just don't see white evangelicalism as giving sanction to this sort of um, racism, sexism, militarism that the critics of Christian nationalism see in this movement, which by some counts is like 52% of the American population, right? When you start talking about that, yeah, I'll grant there's probably some whites and rural parts of the South that continue to have very racist ideas. Um, I, you know, that's almost certainly the case, right? But it's not 52% of the American population. It simply isn't. When, whenever I see any percentages of polls or anything, I always dismiss it anymore. I've just become so jaded. Plus or minus 6%, plus or minus 3%. I'm going, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's just, but we're driven by it. All right, let's continue in your article, The Threat of Christian Nationalism. You cite some players here. You already mentioned Andrew Seidel and others. I read a little bit about him after reading your article. There's no hiding what he's, I mean, his position. He is out there. And interesting, I'd love to know his backstory, something you know that, that really set him on this track. But he asserts Christian nationalists seek to codify Christian privilege in law favoring Christians above others and disfavoring the non-religious, non-Christians, and minorities. I mean, you just quote him. You're not, you know, rope-a-doping him. What motivates this stuff, Mark? You know, the Freedom From Religion Foundation really is sort of an outlier, even among the more separatist organizations, right? As you know, there's a number of organizations advocating for the strict separation of church and state, Americans and others united, the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Legislation, the American Humanist Association. The Freedom From Religion Foundation seems to just absolutely hate faith. They're they're explicitly pro-atheist, they mock Christians, and they're an equal opportunity mocker. They'll mock Jews and Hindus and others. Um, they just seem to hate 
religion. They believe there should be no public manifestations of religion. Um, so, for instance, when Ohio created a, a Holocaust memorial on public land and was going to include a Star of David in this Holocaust memorial, the Freedom From Religion Foundation said, no, you can't do that because of the strict separation of church and state. Um, Andrew Seidel wrote a horrible book on um, on America's founding. Um, he and I had a great debate at the University of Louisville, um, which you can actually find online if you just Google Mark David Hall and Andrew Seidel, you can watch that. Um, he has a new book coming out on religious liberty. My new book has something to do with religious liberty as well. And so I think we'll probably be debating again, uh, maybe in Good. the fall. And so, you know, in, in person, he's, he's a pleasant guy. He just clearly has an anti-religious animus that makes him want to destroy you know, I'm, I'm sure he'd be happy to say, look, we should leave Michael and Mark alone to worship in their churches, uh, but they certainly mm. cannot go out into the public square and make arguments based on religion. If they do, they're racist, sexist, homophobic, militarist, the whole nine yards. I think you and I talked about this before with the Obergefell decision, and I always get the justice wrong. Was it Justice Stevens? One of them who was in favor of Obergefell said the test of this is going to be in religious freedom. And religious liberty. And, you know, it's not just bake the cake or make the flower arrangement. It's officiate the service. I think you and I talked about that. That is a battle that is coming for sure. The majority made it crystal clear. Look, we're going to require legal recognition of same-sex marriage throughout the country. But we understand that Americans of good faith might oppose it. And there's other constitutional provisions that protect their ability to speak into this debate or to act upon their religious convictions. Even before that decision, right, the um, the left progressives were already going after wedding vendors that said they yeah. could not, as a matter of conscience, participate in a same-sex wedding ceremony. There certainly are, uh, during the Obergefell debates, uh, one of the justices, I think it was Alito, asked the Solicitor General of the United States, what about religious entities like Moody Bible Institute, George Fox University? Is there going to be a threat that their tax-exempt status will be yanked if they continue to adhere to traditional Christian morality? The Solicitor General said yes. Maybe it's Associate Solicitor General, but said yes. Right now, fortunately, no one is going after trying to force ministers, priests, imams, rabbis to participate in same-sex wedding ceremonies. But we know that's going to come. It's Eventually, a matter of time. Uh, you can't convince me otherwise. It's a matter of time. And they will pick a big target with a big pocketbook so they can make a you know a precedent out of it. And then we'll have to follow. I mean, George Fox, your school went through some challenges. And I'm sure a lot of these go unreported because they might be settled somehow between you know deans and students. But, yeah, it's coming. I don't see how you, you stop it. Let's continue back to your article here. You also cite a uh, an author— Catherine Stewart, and uh, is it a book or an article, The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism? That's a book. It's a book, okay. And uh, boy, she's got some strong things to say. She describes Falwell as spewing toxins, Jack Phillips to homophobic cake bakers and florists, Mm -hmm. explains the shift of some Republicans from being pro-choice to pro-life as the, quote, closing of the Republican mind. That's got to be an homage to Alan Bloom's book, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But she goes on in in your article. So again, I just don't think the average Christian who loves God, who loves his or her church, who's trying to raise some kids, who maybe wants to have public education as an opportunity for their children— they don't understand what's happening, Mark. 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. And those are just a few examples. Really, she's arguing by rhetoric and not by facts. It's not a rational argument. She's just attempting to paint these people as, as being horrible people. The only reason Jack Phillips, you know, this very principled baker, right? He won't bake cakes to celebrate divorces. He won't bake cakes to celebrate Halloween. He won't bake cakes with alcohol in him. Um, he won't bake cakes to celebrate same-sex wedding ceremonies. Now, you might disagree with them on any of those matters, but hopefully we could all agree and understand this guy is just attempting to run his business according to his religious convictions. And why in the world should the state step in to force him to act against these convictions, especially when there are plenty of bakers that are perfectly yeah. happy to make a custom cake for the same-sex couple, right? So I, I'm in no way, shape, or form saying I have completely traditional views of marriage. But if same-sex couples are going to get married, perhaps they shouldn't be denied access to cakes. That's never been a problem, right? There are always a bazillion bakeries that are willing to bake the cake. So we aren't talking about a denial of access of goods, certainly nothing that's life-sustaining, which is exactly where the critics always go, right? If we allow Jack Phillips to not participate in the same-sex wedding ceremony, will die. then all of a sudden grocery stores will start stop will serving die. homosexuals. It's ridiculous. <laughs> No, people are going to die. That's where they go. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's ridiculous. I, there was an anecdotal YouTube some while back. I don't want to draw people to it, but this gentleman who was Arabic descent going to get married, and he went to four or five you know Arabic Islamic bakers in his community, and then the sort of expose was it was he and his boyfriend, and each of the bakers said no, 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 and they sent him down the street, and he went to I think three or four bakeries in this largely Islamic area, and he was denied by all of them. And I thought, you know, if that was a Christian, Christian Baker, you know, it would be a whole different newsreel. But of course, that's never going to make the nightly news. Oh, by the way, I missed my opportunity to introduce you as the intellectual Zamboni of Christian nationalism. <laughs> you had to laugh at that one. Come on. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? That was um, Andrew Seidel in our debate. And yeah, it's supposedly on the American founding, and I think I just, you know, I think I won that debate by, by you know, hands down. And yet, in his closing statement, he basically labeled me as this horrible sextist person. And what's what's uh, evidence for this? Well, I signed on to a pro-life amicus brief, um, and you know, he tried to tar me with all these other things that had nothing to do with the actual debate. It's pure rhetoric and not argumentation. You're right to argue that. America had a Christian founding is not to say that America was founded as an exclusively Christian nation. America's founders clearly designed the constitutional order that welcomed citizens from any faith or no faith at all. And again, I, and we talk about Judeo-Christian principles that can be so maligned so quickly because, I mean, you, you said it concisely, we don't know our history. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And this is the distinction you just mentioned is one that I think is pretty important. Um, in my book, I argue that America has had a Christian founding, by which I mean America's founders were profoundly influenced by Christian ideas and ideas developed within the Christian tradition of political reflection. And I, I think this benefits all Americans. To say America was founded as a Christian nation just sounds too exclusive to me. It sounds like it was a nation founded by and for Christians, and maybe we'll put up with religious minorities or maybe we don't. I, I absolutely do not think that was the founder's vision. And I quote several times the Washington's letter to the Jewish synagogue in Newport, Rhode yes. Island, where he makes it crystal clear, you are welcome in America. You're just, you have the same rights as everyone else. Um, just, you know, be good citizens and, and you'll be fine. 
Okay, we're going to start with Rush Dooney, and then we're going to do a special second podcast with uh, Mark David Hall because this is just too good, and I'm having too much fun. But talk about Rush Dooney. I, I had to read Rush Dooney in seminary and sort of a critique of what's going on. Give folks a background of this Presbyterian ministry. Sure. So this is a, a very interesting guy that almost no one has heard about. He was a descendant of folks who had fled the Armenian genocide in Turkey, became a, a Presbyterian minister. And eventually, he, um, in, in trying to think through how can I understand the nature of a Christian society, what would a Christian society look like? Now, to make a um, important distinction here, he's a post-millennialist. He believes the kingdom of God yes. will advance, that society will become more and more Christian. Uh, many, many white evangelicals, many evangelicals are premillennialists, right? We kind of believe the world will get maybe worse and worse, and then a rapture will occur and a seven-year tribulation, and then the second coming of Christ. So two very different views of how the end times will play out. So in, in being confident that the United States of America will become more and more Christian, he sort of attempted to work through what would these Christian societies, what, what would a thoroughly Christian society look like? And he makes arguments that are just kind of scary, right? He says the, the Old Testament civil laws would apply in these Christian societies. And so, for instance, witches would be put to death. Adulterers would be put to death. Male homosexuals would be put to death. And he makes a distinction between male homosexuality and female homosexuality. Female homosexuality is still bad, but it's not bad enough to warrant death. Incorrigible juvenile delinquents will be put to death, right? And in each of these cases, he's able to point to passages from Leviticus and elsewhere that do make it seem as if, the, if these passages are still normative, that this is what a Christian society would look like. It's a little problematic to call him a nationalist. He had actually very little interest in the United States of America as a nation. He thought that what we would have is very small Christian communities at no more than the county level where you would have Christian leaders who would bring about these Christian societies where, again, homosexuals would be put to death. Now, this, if, you, if you're saying to me, Mark, I've never heard of the, and I know you have, but you know, many of your listeners, I have never heard of this in my life. That's because Rashtuni right. is a very idiosyncratic Calvinist. Uh, most Calvinists would reject this. Most post-millennials would reject this sort of thing. But Rashtuni believed it, and he wrote his Institutes of Biblical Law, which was published. You can get copies of it. I have a copy of it. You may have, might have read it in seminary. Um, he did have some followers. His son-in-law, Gary North, was a follower. There are several others throughout America. Um, but Almost no one would say, I am a follower of Rush Dooney today. Almost no one. But yet, all of the critics of Christian nationalism, all the political critics, point to him. This is a father of modern Christian nationalism. Now, why do they do that? Because they want to paint Christian nationalism as this very scary thing, as people advocating for the death mm. of homosexuals and adulterers and that sort of thing. Um, he also, not maybe not surprisingly, is a big, big proponent of the male headship within both families and the church. And so you can imagine how progressives look at that and say, well, that looks sexist to me. And so it's really easy to paint Rashtuni as a sexist, racist in some, I think the charges of racism are unfair, but you can point to passages that make him sound a bit racist and so forth. So you can paint him as this evil, scary giant and if indeed 52% of Americans embrace the teachings of Rashtuni, we maybe should be scared. Uh, but We're you know, trouble, as I've suggested, yeah. <laughs> it's a tiny, tiny, tiny handful of people scattered throughout America that embrace these ideas. 
You know, it's analogous to, uh, you know, I'm a dispensationalist and I've got lots of Reformed friends, but some of them think I'm, you know, a heretic and I'm lost. And, And I often make the comment, I said, the true reformed, if you want to call it a five-pointer, which I have great deference with, because that was a response to Jacob Arminius, not to Calvin in general. But be that as it may, we glom these things together. And having been raised Catholic, which my listeners know very well, I often say some of these reformed guys are more Catholic than they understand, that they've held on to vestiges of infant baptism and so forth and so on. And I'm like, I'm not mad about that, but it's an acknowledgement your definition of reform is very different from Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon, Zwingli, and as all those, in a way, theologically metastasized, depending on where they were in Europe. And we don't have the same grasp. You're talking about Rush Duny. We're talking about the moral majority. We're jumping around a lot. We don't have the same grasp, but just because even Luther was right on so many things, he was anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. You know he thought the Jews should be killed, and and yet we don't jettison all of Luther because he held some wrong views. Calvin held some wrong views as well. That being said, when you come across a Rush Dooney or a Gary North, this is the same Gary North during Y2K? Same one. Yes, sir. Yeah, which, you know, I say, man, oh, Gary, you owe America an apology. <laughs> That's right. And let me just say quickly, um, Rush Dooney and his son-in-law, North, broke in the early 1980s. And so even though he was influenced by Rush Dooney, um, he went off and set up his own little outfit down in Texas, I believe, and kind of went off in a different direction, yeah. sort of a survivalist direction. Y2K is going to wipe us out. You got to buy <laughs> all these supplies from me, incidentally, right? It's Yeah, uh, and it was an expensive newsletter, but we'll leave that alone. Actually, this is a great time. So we're going to transition. We're going to take a break here for our listeners. This is Mark David Hall tilting at windmills. His one of his current articles we're talking about, a forthcoming book. We also have another article in the show notes. Is David French a Christian nationalist? question mark manufacturing christian nationalism join us again as we continue this fascinating discussion with mark david hall and we'll see you next time on in context did you know that in context is fully funded by our listeners like you if you are a regular listener would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation you can give at michaelincontext.com in context is produced by hannah seymour mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.